first of all, uh, let me say this. Uh, we're not going to get into the, that's not the message today, but let me just say right off the bat. Chris, Jesus was not born on December 25th. See, some people are shocked. They, they, they really thought that that was it. In fact, uh, this is, a, this is a, December 25th is as an ungodly, it's a pagan holiday. Okay, and it had its roots way back to Nimrod back in the Old Testament and different things. But uh, whether he was born that day or not, people argued. That, that's not the point. The point is, is I want to tell you, where did that come from? Well, in the Dark Ages, uh, there was a lot of persecution against believers in certain countries. Not in every country, but in certain countries. And so December 25th was a pagan holiday that the, that the world basically would celebrate. And Christians discovered that when they celebrated what, whatever day they were going to choose for Jesus' birth, because nobody knows exactly what it is, uh, that because uh, the, the, the authorities would recognize that something, something special is going on in their home. And they're having some kind of a get-together get or a party or whatever, and they would be persecuted. So what the church got together, and they were very smart, and they yes. said, we don't, want, we don't need unnecessarily drawing attention to ourselves, so why don't we pick a pagan holiday where everybody is celebrating, and let's celebrate the birth of Jesus on that day so that we just blend in with everything else that's going on, and they don't arrest us and put us in prison. That's where, that's where it originated from. And so the, it, was, it was added on. It was never thought originally that it was Jesus' birthday. The early church knew it wasn't Jesus' birthday, but they added it on to that day because everybody was celebrating the pagan holiday on December 25th, and it allowed Christians to celebrate under the radar. Do you understand? So you don't have to be legalistic. Whether we do, whether if we did know the exact date, that would be great. We don't. But whether you knew the exact date or not, whether you, whether you celebrate Jesus' birthday in March or April, which is when he was actually born, that's not really the point. And we can get so legalistic. And I know people that have left churches because churches celebrate Christmas. They get so over the top with legalism. God is not into legalism. What is, well, he's looking at the heart. God knows that this is not something that is, that, that, that he knows why the church did it originally. And it was a good reason because it avoided them being persecuted. But it's, it's the point is, is that our heart is celebrating Jesus and his birth. Whether it's December 25th, January 6th, March 14th, it doesn't really matter the date. What matters is that we take a time out of honor for Jesus. And we take a time every year and we say, you know, this is a time where we're dedicating, where we're making, making everybody around us realize that we are. Now today we don't have persecution, so we can talk about him openly. We can put lights in our tree and in our homes because really he's the light of the world and that's why we do it. So there's many, uh, there's many symbols of Christmas. I've talked about that in years past, the tree and all the different symbols of that, why we light, why we do gifts. That's not really what I want to focus on, although that's very interesting too. But I just want to start off by saying Jesus was not born on December 25th. Nobody knows the exact day that he was born. However, we do know that he was born around the time where the shepherds were, were, were watching over the newly born lambs. And these were lambs that were going to be sacrificed in the temple as burnt offerings to God during Passover. Passover is always in March or April. It changes based on the year, but it's always in that time of the year. And so the lambs were being born shortly before Passover. And Jesus was born at the time of the lambs. 
And that is, that is, that's not a question mark. That is, that is 100%. And I'm going to talk more about this on Wednesday. So I encourage you, come or watch, but I'm going to talk more about this on Wednesday. So Jesus was born around the time that the lambs were born. The sacrificial lambs were born in the natural. Why? Because it, God did that on purpose because he is the sacrificial lamb that was born. And even the time of the year, God wanted it to match the symbolism. So we know Jesus was most likely born in February or March. Uh, that is when that is where well, most people agree that he was born in February or March because it was at the time where the where the sacrificial lambs were born and they were always born in February or March. So that's when really Christmas is. But again, we're not talking about the legalism. We're talking about our heart wants to celebrate him. So today what I'm going to do now, have you ever seen a bullet train in Japan? Those trains go fast. And then have you ever seen the Chuggalug train, you know, in the Rocky Mountains? That is certainly not a bullet train because it's going around, all right? Now, I can either be the Chuggalug or I can be the bullet today. So if I'm the bullet, I'm going to go at, 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 at lightning speed. It's going to be an hour and a half message, so you're going to miss your turkey basting, and, uh, and, and, then, and then we're done. But I thought, I'm not going to do that because I'm, it's not going to have the right effect. So we're going to do part one today, and we're going to do part two on, on Wednesday, okay? Because next Sunday, I want to, uh, uh, next Saturday, I should say, a week today, I want to get back into our Joseph series, and I want to get that concluded because the new year is coming, and there's other things we need to talk about. Praise God, some things God's been dealing with me about. So, but I can't get all this, so much information, I can't get it out in one setting. So part one today, and part two on Wednesday. If you can't come, I encourage you to watch, because there's some amazing things. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Mary and Joseph. We're going to talk about their betrothal. We're going to talk about Nazareth. We're going to talk about Bethlehem. We're going to talk about those facts today. But on Wednesday, we're going to talk about, about the shepherds and about the angels and about the magi. And there's some fascinating things that I've learned in my studying on those three, on those three areas, especially with the shepherds. There's an, some amazing things that, that I've discovered about those shepherds and the beautiful symbolism between the, what, they, what they did and what, G, what Mary did with Jesus. It's, it's actually quite shocking. And most people don't know these things. And so, but you have an amazing pastor. Just a phenomenal professor. Sorry, we're not in Bible school. You have an amazing pastor. And so, and so I've done some research. Now you say, where did you learn these deep truths, Pastor Craig? Pastor Craig, how did you plumb the depths to find these things? Well, that's my business, not yours. And I'm not telling you, but I will tell you at the end of Wednesday night. There, there is a wonderful book that has been written that has really helped me and taught me a lot of these things by a scholar, a theologian, a theological scholar has written a book. And so I'm going to put that up on the screen to give credit because I don't want to plagiarize. So we're going to give credit. And then if you want to go and order that book, you can learn a lot more than what I'm teaching you in, the, in these next two sessions. But to let you think that I'm extremely smart, we're going to put that book up at the end so that you can think that I came up with a lot of this of my own. Amen. So, so today is part one and Wednesday angels, magi and shepherds is part two. And uh, I just think it's fascinating to learn a little bit more about what this is really about. A lot of people don't know these, these, these details and facts. Are you, are you ready to go? So let's have a look. Just put up a couple pictures of the church of the nativity, if you don't mind, so that you can see what this actually looks like in real life. 
Go ahead. So the right now, if you were to go to Bethlehem, uh, there's, oh, there's a huge Christmas tree that is set up there. And it's all, it's all Muslim controlled, which is kind of humorous to me. Uh, but there's a huge Christmas tree. And that right there is the church of the nativity. And inside that church underneath the floor is the actual original cave. It's one of the few places in Israel where they know exactly the place. A lot of places you go, they think, well, it could have been here. You're not sure. We're not sure it could have been there. You know, there's a lot of things that they're not sure about on the tours. This is one of the only places where they actually know for sure 100% that Jesus was born in the cave underneath the floor of that building. And that has been proven since, the, since 200 AD. Uh, that has been proven. So uh, there, there, that's just another picture just so you can get a, a sense and feel for modern day, uh, modern day Bethlehem and the Church of the Nativity. Go to the next one. Uh, that's, that is not as good. That's where you walk into it, the Church of the Nativity. Is there another one there? quickly. Uh, yeah, the, 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 now this is Bethlehem at night, but you can see in, in the background, you can't really see because it's built up today, but imagine back 2,000 years ago, there wasn't as many buildings. This is a very, very small area, but see it's hilly, and in those hills in the background, there, there were many, many, many caves that were built into the rock face. Go to the last picture. I think there's one more just to give you. See how, see how it, it's very, it's very, uh, there's a lot of uh, topography there. But there's a lot of caves that in the old days were built into the land. And that's what I want to talk to you about just a little bit about. And I'm going to read some of this and I'm going to just talk some of it. But there's so many details, some of it I have to read. So in the hills surrounding Bethlehem, uh, today there are, but especially back in, back in the time when Jesus was born, there are many shallow caves that were once used as stables and barns for livestock. And, where she- and shepherds would, would find shelter for them and their sheep. You can't bring sheep into somebody's home. But if there's a storm, the shepherds would need to be able, especially the, the, the lambs that were going to be sacrificed, they were very special. They had to be without blemish, without any. So if there was any kind of rain, any kind of storm, they would have to get indoors somehow, but not in a house. And so what they did is they, they carved many caves right into the rock face, primarily for shepherds to bring their sheep in storms. Okay, but also where they where the local people in Bethlehem would put their livestock because they didn't bring their livestock inside. So they would put their livestock and it would give them a shelter. Also, at certain times, festivals and different times, there was not enough room for people to stay. We know Mary didn't have room at the inn. And so travelers would often come and stay in these. So what they were, when you think of stable, all the Christmas cards are wrong. A stable is not made of wood. And, and the manger was not made of wood. There was nothing made of wood in, in, in Bethlehem basically at that time because wood was a scarcity. Wood was very rare and extremely expensive. They were not going to make buildings out of wood. If you used wood, it was carved for very intricate things. It was a very, it was a very expensive process to have anything to do with wood because in Israel at that time, there was very, very little wood. So things that, when you see that scene, that's just somebody that created that for a movie and it stuck. But that is not what the manger, that is not what Bethlehem would have looked like. There were caves and there inside the caves, there were, there were, there were dug out areas where they would put their livestock and where travelers sometimes would get in out of the rain or the storms. But that, and that's really what, where Jesus was born. Okay, so it was built right into the actual rock. It was, it was not made of wood, but it was actually hewn of rock. Josephus, who was one of the most renowned Jewish historians and considered the most accurate, wrote about these caves scattered around the hills around Bethlehem 
And it was a widely accepted fact that in addition to shepherds and livestock, local travelers passing through could find accommodation there if they couldn't at the inns. Now, inns were not hotels the way we think of them today. They were no, they may have been very rare and only for extremely rich people, but it was not like an inn or a motel like you think of today where that was their business. What people would do, 99% of the inns were just somebody's home. And on the second floor of their home, there'd be a spare bedroom and they would let a stranger come in and rent the room. It, that, that was when they say there was no room at the inn. It just literally means they, was, they would go to people's homes. They would knock on doors, say, do you have a room that I can rent for the night? And that was the inns. It wasn't like the Motel 6 kind of thing or the Hampton Inn. Do you know what I'm saying? We call those inns today. That's not how it was back then. Those were just individual residences with the second floor that were rented out, usually one or two rooms at the most. Now in these caves, they bored holes at intervals in the dense stone walls and attached hitching posts that they would tie the animals up. And underneath each hitching post, built right into, carved right into the living rock, were something called feeding troughs or mangers. Okay, so they, they would tie the animal and then they would put food and water and literally the animal would stand right above the feeding trough so they could, they could get their sustenance whenever they needed it. But it was built right into the rock. And that's what Jesus would have been placed in. That's the manger. It was made out of rock. It was not made out of wood. It was in a cave. It was not in a barn. But it was a noisy, smelly place and there would have been a lot of animals there. And it's possible, depending on how busy it was, that it might not have just been Mary and Joseph. We don't know, but because it was tax time, because there was a census, because all the stuff was gone, there could have been other people there, not just shepherds. And the, it, and, and the wise men, by the way, didn't show up then. The wise men weren't there the night Jesus was born. Jesus was two years old running around in a diaper when the wise men showed up. Do you understand? So on that night when you see the Magi, that's not how it looked. But the shepherds were there. And the shepherds regularly, uh, they were used to being in that area because they were used to putting their sheep in there. So this was not unusual for the shepherds to be there. But there could have been other travelers. There could have been other people. We don't know. It could have been a busy place. It might have just been them. But we know it was a cave, not a barn. And it was made out of rock, not out of wood. If you want to look at it properly and historically. Okay? See, you're already learning so much. Is it going to get you healed in the middle of the night? No, but it sure is darn interesting. <laughs> Justin Martyr was a, was, was a writer. He was born 30 miles from Bethlehem. And he wrote about Jesus' birth being in a cave in 150 A.D. Noted theologian Origen uh, in 248 speaks about the cave in Bethlehem where Christ was born in the manger and he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now in 240, listen to this, in 248 A.D., Origen says that uh, the cave and the manger was still at that time, quote-unquote, greatly talked of. So people 248 years later were greatly talking about the exact cave and the exact manger that Jesus was laid in. Isn't that interesting? So, so basically, uh, you couldn't, if it was made of wood 250 years later, that wood wouldn't exist. Do you understand? But because it was hewn into the living rock, that manger was still there. For, for, for many decades afterward. And there was an interest and an awareness that people have. And people knew, even in 248 AD, it was a common knowledge in that, in that time, that's the cave that the, the Christ child was born in. They knew the exact cave. 
because that continued on from the time of Jesus' birth. So that's why I said that's one of the only places in Israel where they actually know exactly where the site is. A lot of the other type is guesswork, but that is something that's not guesswork. So the mother, Helena was her name, the mother of Emperor Constantine. Remember, Constantine took it from the Roman pagan religion into Christianity and eventually became the Catholic Church. And that happened in the 300s AD. But his mother, Helena, when she converted to Christianity from paganism in 312, 312 AD, 312 years after Jesus was born, she went and spent two years living in Israel, the mother of the, of the emperor. And she, and she interviewed every living person that had relatives that were alive at the time of Jesus. It took her two years. Can you imagine that? How, how invested she was, that she wanted, she loved Jesus so much, she wanted to learn about his life. And for two years, her and of course her entourage uh, live interviewed every living person that they could find that had some living relative at the time Jesus was born. And, that, and she discovered where the different sites were in Capernaum, and one of her interests was where he was born. And so she went, and after much study and much investigation, as well as looking at what Justin Martin and, and, and Origen had written. She was aware of their writings. She, they, they determined the exact cave and the exact manger. And she asked her son who agreed and they made a decree that the first church would be built there and it was built in 326. That's the church I showed you. Just go back to that first picture there, the, the, the nice one, the first one you showed. So that, that was uh, first built in 326. It was dedicated in 339. But many years later, Emperor Justinian, Justinian gave an order for a more beautiful church to be built than the original one. And they called it, he called it the Church of the Nativity. And that was uh, around 600 in the 6th century, so around 500 and something A.D. And uh, that is, now of course they've renovated and different things, but many parts of that church are the original church that Justinian built in the 500s. And that is exactly over the place. And if you go inside, I didn't put pictures, but there's a room and there's a hole in the floor and you can be lowered down into that hole and you can go and that's where the actual cave was. And, and, and I don't know if the actual manger is still there, but things that are built right into living rock, they last a long time. I'm not sure if they allow people down into that hole anymore, but they used to. But anyway, that, that's the place. And what I think is interesting is that this is the, um, this is the oldest site in the history of Christianity that is continuously be used, been used as a place of worship. So from 326 AD, they would hold services here and worship Jesus and thank God for bringing Jesus into the world. And from 326 to now, it is the oldest site in the world where Christianity has been continually practiced and worshiped. I think that's interesting. And it's a place where Jesus was born. It's highly ornamented, of course, and, uh, you know, doesn't look obviously anything like the place that, that, would, that Jesus would have seen. But that's where it was. So Jesus was not born in a barn. It's okay that you have your Christmas cards. Don't throw them out. <laughs> but we need somebody to do a good, we need Caleb or something to do a good drawing of a cave and the manger and Jesus in that because that's what it actually looked like. Now, let's talk a little bit about Jesus' family. Uh, people don't realize, but Jesus had grandparents. I know we don't think of that, do we? That he, he would call somebody grandpa and he would go visit granddad. Well, he did. And, and on, jo on his dad's side, Joseph's side, uh, his granddad's name was Jacob. And on Mary's side, his granddad's name was uh, Joachim, J-O-A-C-H-I-M. That sounds Mexican, Jenny. I know. And I don't think his grandfather was Mexican. <laughs> and nothing wrong with Mexicans, but I just don't think it's called Joachim. I'm sorry, I don't. <laughs> So, um, so, 
I did push uh, how to pronounce it and it said Joaquin. But I'm not saying that because Jesus' grandpa wasn't from Mexico. So what I'm going to say is Joaquin, okay? I think that's how you're supposed to say Joaquin or Joaquin or something like that. Okay, now in Matthew 13, 55, it said that Jesus, do you know how many brothers Jesus had? Do you know how many brothers Jesus had? Four brothers. Do you know how many sisters Jesus had? Janet, don't be so smart. Just, just, just sit there quietly. Just know your place, honey. And women in the church be silent. That's what the Bible says. Oh, I'm just a kidding. I'm just a kidding now. I'm just a kidding. Jesus had four brothers. Do you know what their names were? James, Simon, Joseph, and Jude. Do you realize that none of his four brothers believed he was the Christ until after he rose again? So he never had any family support other than Mary and Joseph. He had two sisters, but the Bible doesn't tell us their names. It just says that his sisters, plural, so we know he had at least two. He might have had more, but the Bible doesn't list them. It wasn't in the culture back then to list the women. It was more for the men. But he had four brothers, and James, the firstborn, so Jesus was born first, and then James was born. James wrote the book of James. Do you realize that? James was also the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And James was the one who was killed. By Herod. Do you remember? Also, Jude, we don't know much about Joseph and Simon. Not much is written about them in history. But the last one, the baby brother, Jude, wrote the book of Jude. So when you read the book of Jude, you're reading somebody who grew up with Jesus, who was his, who was his actual brother. Amen? None of them believed, but uh, they all believed afterward. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says that Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection, and only when Jesus appeared to him did he finally acknowledge that his actual brother was the Christ. But it took an appearing of Jesus to James for him to believe. Remember, remember doubting Thomas? Same kind of thing. James was like that. He became a believer and a leader. As I told you, he was also martyred. Uh, Jesus' youngest sibling, Jude, wrote the book of Jude. Out of the Bible itself lists, if you study it, 14 members of Jesus' extended family, immediate and extended family were in the ministry. Jesus and his immediate and extended family, 14 of them did ministerial work, somehow working for God in the ministry. God does call families. He really does. Not, not, that does not a general a, a rule, a legalistic rule that everybody in a family has to be in ministry, but God loves to call families. Amen? And so Jesus, had, he had a family. He had grandparents. He had brothers and sisters. And uh, he had a normal life from that perspective. Let's talk a little bit about Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus went, remember, after they came back from Egypt, uh, when they had, fleeing, uh, they'd, they had fleed there from Herod, they came back. And of course, they didn't go to Bethlehem. They went to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was the place that Joseph lived before they went to Bethlehem. Remember, he lived in Nazareth and then they went to be taxed in Bethlehem. Now, a lot of people don't know much about Nazareth. Let me tell you a few interesting things about it. Nazareth was a hole in the wall. Nazareth was an inconsequential, absolutely tiny agricultural village that nobody visited and nobody liked. That's why it says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, Nazareth was like just Loserville, like we don't even want to talk about you. You're, you're just, you're bumpkins. You're country bumpkins. Nobody, like, you know what I mean? It's like the rednecks lived in Nazareth. Okay? Nazareth was, 100, was 70 to 150 people in total. And, and archaeologists say at its absolute height, maybe it had a maximum of 250 to 300 people, but its average was 70 to 150 people. That's the whole town population. I've been in Indian villages in the middle of the jungle that had more people than Nazareth. 
It was absolutely minuscule. It was a little dot on the map that nobody cared about. I just want you to know that's the environment that Jesus was raised in. It was off the beaten track. Now this is interesting. Isaiah 11 once is a messianic prophecy that Isaiah said, and he said, and I quote, a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesus is called the capital B branch. Now this is a prophecy that Jesus would come from the line of Jesse or the line of David, but there's something a little bit more hidden in this prophecy. It's, that's the obvious interpretation, but it doesn't just mean that Jesus was coming from David's line. It also shows where Jesus was coming from because the word branch in Hebrew is Nazareth. And the reason they called Nazareth the branch was because there was a branch or a a, literally an offshoot of the Davidic line that moved there in 100 AD. So they called it Nazareth. They called it the place of the branch. Why? The place of the branching off of David's seed line because they historically did not live in Nazareth. They lived elsewhere, but a group of people from his direct seed line moved to Nazareth 100 years before Jesus was born, and they called it Nazareth or the branch. Why? The branch of David's seed line. But it's also prophecy because the branch, the capital B, who's also of David's seed line, is going to come and he's actually going to live in the branch. That's interesting, isn't it? I thought that was interesting how there was a play on words there. And... uh, Both, this is, a lot of people don't know this either, that let's say, oh, we know that Joseph was a seed of David, but maybe Mary, we're not sure about. No, Mary, they have proven this unequivocally. Mary and Joseph were both of David's royal seed line. Mary was just as much as David was. And it was important that that happened. Luke 24 says that Joseph was of David's lineage. But Romans chapter 13, it says that Christ was the seed of David according to the flesh. And this is very important. To say that David, Jesus was the seed of David according to the flesh meant that who, who, how did Jesus come? It was without male help. Jesus came impregnated by the father in Mary's womb. Joseph had nothing to do with how he came. So when it says he was of David's seed line in the flesh, it meant the flesh that Jesus came out of, which was Mary's flesh. Mary was the one that gave birth to him. Joseph had nothing to do with it. Mary's flesh had to be a part of of David's seed line because Jesus was part of the seed line. Remember, Jesus had to come from David's, Jesus had to come from David's line. It couldn't just be Joseph from David's line because Joseph never participated in his birth. So the physical person, God participated and a human participated, but Mary the human had to be from David's seed line or the prophecy wouldn't have come to pass. And she was, praise God. Her father, uh, Joachim, was of the royal line of David. And her mother, Anna, Jesus' grandma was named Anna. And she was a royal descendant from Aaron, the priest's line. Which I think is fascinating that you've got a kingly and a priestly line, both in, G- in Mary's DNA, and she gives birth to the priest king. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that marvelous? So both, 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 J- both Joseph was of the seed line and Mary was of the seed line through their parents. Now, 
Mary, this is a little picture that you'll see in the book if you want to get it. Go ahead, uh, a little picture of Mary. You can just keep that up. We're going to talk a little bit about Mary for a second because Mary is revered around the world and, and for good reason. Unfortunately, sometimes certain religions, Catholics especially, they almost idolize her above God and they'll actually pray to her, which is unscriptural. You're not supposed to pray to people, no matter how wonderful they were. And uh, we're supposed to pray to God and Jesus only. But Mary was an amazing young lady. And I want to share you some interesting statistics. This is Christmas time, right? Should we sing another carol, Brother, Errol, Brother Taylor, just to get them in the Christmas mood. <laughs> Mary's parents, Joachim and Anna, they lived in Jerusalem and they were wealthy and they used their resources. They were very generous. They used their resources to help the synagogue. Interesting that God chose people that weren't chintzy and stingy. Mm-hmm. We won't talk about that anymore. His job, Grandpa Joachim's job, was a scroll scholar, meaning that he studied the Word every day, all day long. And he specifically was responsible for the ancient scrolls. Remember, they didn't have, they didn't, you know, back then they had scrolls. They had to preserve them. Anything, you, you ruin those scrolls. It's not like there's backups. There's no clouds. There's no MacBooks. If you lose those scrolls, you're done. Do you understand? So it was a very important job to preserve the ancient scrolls from Isaiah's time and earlier. And so he was a scroll scholar. His job basically was to study, preserve, and keep, protect those ancient scrolls. That's what Jesus' grandfather's job was. He was a part of a team of men who preserved and studied and attended to the scrolls. Anna, did you know this? Anna, his grandma, was barren. Anna and jo Joachim could not have children. So according to 1 Samuel 1, 9, I think this is so marvelous. Anna and Joachim, according to 1 Samuel 1, 9, they read that and they prayed the same prayer that Hannah prayed. And they said, Lord, if you'll give us a child, we will dedicate him or her to you for your glory forever. They prayed that prayer and she got pregnant. In their older years, she got pregnant. And they, she gave birth to a, she, Mary was a, an only child. She had no siblings. And, and they gave birth to a girl named, and they named her Mary. And listen, this is very important. Because of their vow to the Lord, like Hannah. Do you remember Hannah brought him to the temple? Well, she had, an, then Hannah had told Samuel, if God will do this, I'll do that. But of course, Anna and Joachim didn't say that to the high priest. But they, they, they were very serious. We'll dedicate her. So from the time she was born and the time she could comprehend and understand, they constantly drilled into her, you are a miracle baby. You are special. God gave you to us for a very special purpose. Because we couldn't have you until we said, we will give her to you, Lord, for your purpose. And then he gave you to us. So you're a miracle. She was constantly told, you're a miracle baby. And when God reveals his purpose to you, say yes. Now, they didn't know what the purpose was. I'm sure they had no clue. How could anybody have any clue that her purpose would be to bring Jesus into the world? But they told her all the time, you're a miracle baby. And whenever God reveals his purpose, prepare yourself now that when he tells you what the purpose is, you won't argue. You'll just say yes. I think that's fascinating. See, because God had to get somebody to agree with him. And if he had talked to some girl and said, you're going to get pregnant without a man, can you imagine what 
virtually every girl would say, well, that, 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 that's ridiculous. I can't handle it. Now, she, when the angel came, if you read it, she, she did say, how can this happen? But she didn't argue and say it can't happen. She didn't, most people would say that can't happen. She didn't say it can't happen. She just said, how is this going to happen? Since I know not a man. She wanted to know the process, but she wasn't withstanding the fact that he had said it. And immediately then she said, well, he said, for with God, all things are possible. And she said, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. Why could she not argue? Why could she agree so quickly to something that no other woman before or since has ever experienced? Because from the time she was a a toddler, her mom and daddy were saying, you're a miracle, but you're a miracle child. And God's got a purpose for you. And when he reveals it, just say yes. Don't don't argue, don't whine, just say yes. And so she said, now listen, they would also tell her, you're a servant of the Lord. Because back then they didn't have the revelation of child of God. We do today. But they would tell her, the historical documents, they they would tell her. And the reason why we know this is because people would interview Mary. Mary lived long. And she lived in Ephesus with John. John, remember John the Revelator? John, Jesus said to John at the cross, this is my mother, this is your son. He took care of her to the day of her death. And he lived in Ephesus. And, and many people, historic, there's historical writings that people would come and interview Mary for hours about details about Jesus' life and about the, 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 the supernatural, you know, pregnancy and all that stuff. So there's a lot of documents, ancient documents that have been written by Mary's own one-on-one interviews. And that's where we get a lot of this from is because she actually said this. It's not recorded in the Bible, but it's in extra biblical references. And she, she, she said, I was always told as a child, you're a miracle baby. And whatever God asks you to do, just say yes. And don't argue with him because you're, you're, you're a miracle and there's something special for you. And that's why, and she, they would tell her, you're a servant of the Lord. Now, most men were called servants, not women. But they would drill her, because you're a miracle, because there's a plan for your life, you are a servant of the Lord. They would tell her over and over, you're a servant of God. Now, when they talked in a female version to say the word, you're a servant, they wouldn't usually use the word servant. They would use the word handmaiden. Handmaiden meant female servant. That is why she said to the angel, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Bid it done according to thy word. What she's saying is, I'm a servant. I'm ready to be used. I've known all my life that I'm a servant. And I'm ready to say yes. Let it be done according to thy word. See, God planned the whole thing. He couldn't take a risk of this girl messing up with her words or not being able to believe him. He planned it. I think that's an amazing an amazing story. That's in Luke 138, let it be according to her. Also, when she was a young girl, before she, like, eight, seven, eight, nine, they, 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 around that time, I don't exactly know the years, but they enrolled her because of the plan of God for her life that they knew was special. They enrolled her in a special school for girls in Jerusalem. That was unheard of back then because girls were not educated primarily. That was for the boys because that culture was very male-oriented. But because they knew there was a plan... They enrolled her in a special school in Jerusalem, right beside the temple. There was an all-girls school that taught them the Torah and the prophets. And and Mary studied for hours a day the prophets and the word. See, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And God wanted her around the word all the time so that when the time came for her plan, the plan to come, she had faith for it. Isn't that amazing? And they even enrolled her in a school for that. Praise God. 
And he, of course, worked in Jerusalem. At that time, he worked in Jerusalem because he was a scroll scholar, and there were scrolls in Jerusalem, obviously, in the temple. And so he worked there. They lived there. And, uh, and, that's, and then she went to school there. Then, toward later in her life, before, obviously, she probably closer to nine and ten years old, they moved to a city. Most people never heard about the city, but this city is called Sephorus. Sephorus is a, is, a, is, a, is a city, it's not a town, it's a city, and it's six kilometers from Nazareth. If you are in Nazareth and you look, and I've actually been there and, I, and I've seen it, when you look, it is six kilometers because everything's so hilly. It, does, it looks a lot less than six kilometers, but it is technically six kilometers away, exactly six kilometers away, just under four miles. And Sephorus was a, was a grand city, because, okay, let me say, you have to understand this. Herod the Great, remember Herod that tried to kill the baby? He killed the babies, remember? Herod died. Remember the angel said, when Herod dies, you're in Egypt, I'll tell you, bring, bring the child back. But they had to wait for Herod to die. So Herod died. Now, Herod had three sons. And one of his sons was uh, Herod, uh, I don't know where I wrote all this down, but anyway, Herod uh, Achilles was one, Herod Philip was the other, and Herod Antipas was the third. Okay, and Philip was up there in the northern area by Banyas and by the Golan Heights and everything like that. But Philip Antipas ruled over the area where Jesus grew up in Galilee. So every one of these, these three king's sons, which each were kind of governors in their own right, they each wanted to find a capital city in the province that they were over. And that was going to be where they had their palace and they were going to have all their stuff. So Herod Antipas chose Sephorus as his capital in Galilee because he was over that whole region. So Jesus is in Nazareth, which is in Galilee, and at six kilometers from Sephorus. Sephorus is the capital of Galilee that Herod Antipas has chosen and his palace and all this, the theater. It was a beautiful city and it had, it had a big theater that held 5,000 people for, for gladiatorial games and different things like that. And, and it had a library and it had a huge synagogue and it had, it had actual hotels, not just people's homes. It was a very modern city and it was just six kilometers away. So what, what that city was known for, Jewish-wise, was it, it was the housing place of the most ancient scrolls in the whole country. They never kept the most precious scrolls in Jerusalem because they were afraid one day Jerusalem may be overthrown. And they were right because in 70 AD, the Romans burned it to the ground and they would have lost all those scrolls. So what the Sanhedrin decided is that's our main place of worship, but let's keep the most important scrolls that we cannot risk to lose. Let's keep them in Sephorus. So Joachim, his granddad, was a scroll scholar. He worked in Jerusalem. Mary went to the girls' school. But what happened was around the time she was probably around 10 years old, they don't exactly know, but around that time, probably around 10, they moved, the Sanhedrin moved the grandpa, because he worked for them, they moved him to Sephorus, because he's a scroll scholar. So the, all, the, the most ancient and precious scrolls are in Sephorus. And remember, he is there to preserve them and, and study them and watch over them. And so then it would make sense that that would be where his post was. So he went to Sephorus. So now you've got Mary is living in Sephorus and her mother, Anna, and Joachim. They're all living in Sephorus. Now, Jake, now Joseph is living in Nazareth. Are you with me? Okay. Well, uh, you don't seem interested, so I'm just going to close down. I'm just going to leave that. Before I talk a little bit more about that, let me tell you Mary's qualities. Put that picture up. She loved the Lord. These are some qualities that we see of Mary. She loved and was trained in the word. Remember, she actually went to school for it. 
because she had to have faith. What else? Number two, she loved the, what we would call the local church. She was extremely involved in the synagogue because her father was in charge of the scrolls of the synagogue. So she was a church girl. Yes. You want God to use you? Love the word and be in church. Yes. Number three, these are lessons we learned. She had renewed her mind to the fact that she had an important purpose in life and to say yes to God without argument, to agree no matter how impossible it seemed. That's such a huge thing, especially for her. And number four, she was sexually pure. And I think we need to talk about that because so many people are, are just, they're playing games with this. Well, we're getting married anyway, so let's just jump in the sack. No, no, no. There was a reason why God chose her, and one of the biggest reasons was she was sexually pure. All right. Praise God. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about Sephoris in a second, but I want to talk to you a little bit about what it means to be espoused. Do you remember the angel came to her when she was espoused to Joseph? Now, what does that mean? A lot of people don't understand what that means. Well, Jewish girls were eligible to be espoused for marriage as early as 12 and a half years old. That was the earliest. Scholars believe Mary was most likely 14 at the time she was espoused. Okay? Now remember, Joachim, Anna, and Mary are living in Sepphoris because that's where the sacred scrolls are. But there is this guy named Joseph who lives in Nazareth, which is six kilometers away. I'll explain in a second why Joseph would come to Sepphoris every day. Every day Joseph was in Sepphoris. And because the synagogue was so huge there, most likely he attended church in Sepphoris. And he would have met Joachim because Joachim was involved in the synagogue. So where do you think Joseph and Mary met? At church. Which is where, where it's, the, and I'm not saying it's the only place, but it's a good place to meet. Because you think the same way and you love God the same way. So she's there meeting Joseph. That's how they hooked up. And then, of course, when they espoused, in other words, when they got engaged, what happens is the, the, the Jewish tradition was the girl always had to move into the family house of the, the, the future husband's parents because the husband lived with the parents. So where did Joseph live? In Nazareth with his mom and dad. She's living in Sepphoris with her mom and dad. When they got espoused, she had to come and live in the house with Joseph and his mom and dad in a separate room. Okay, that's why when the angel came and she had been espoused, he came to Nazareth. He didn't go to Sepphoris because she was living in Nazareth in, in the, with the family of her future husband. Are you with me? Now, this espousal period, unlike modern engagements where you can just decide, you give somebody a promise ring and then later on you decide they're ugly and you don't want to marry them anymore <laughs> or they annoy you yeah, yeah. Or, 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 or they burp too much or whatever the problems are and you decide to break it off. It wasn't like that in Jewish culture. When you were espoused, it was a legal binding agreement. In order to terminate the espousal required the legal action of a divorce. Do you understand? It was as real as for our day when you come and say kiss the bride. When you were espoused, it's as legally real as that moment. There were actually legal documents signed to say that you were husband and wife when you were engaged or espoused. So it's not like us today. They did it with great sobriety. You didn't get espoused because you thought maybe this is a good idea. You had done all the, and the parents did it. Do you understand? Okay, so the espousal was initiated with that legal agreement, and then a public announcement was made to the whole city. Everybody knew this person is marrying this person, and it's legal now when they're espoused. Okay, and at, and at this point, the bride and groom were, were legally 
connected and responsible for each other. All right. Now, the espousal period lasted one year. So for that one year, you're legally married, but you can't have sex. And you are living with the husband's family. And why did they do that? And this is is very precious to me. I, I just think there's a lot we can learn, even in our modern culture, from this. They did that because they wanted the young people who were usually teenagers, don't know nothing much about life, but they wanted them to understand marriage is so precious and important that we're going to make you take an entire year to get to know each other, to prepare and to train for what is coming. You're not allowed to touch each other sexually, but you're going to see each other every day. You're going to eat meals with each other every day. You're going to talk about your personality differences. I mean, if they had it back then, you're going to find out your love language which they didn't have back then, but you know, everybody, even back then, even though the book wasn't written, everybody has a love language. It would have been a connecting period with the husband's parents overseeing to keep it clean. But you're going to get to know each other. You're going to do chores together. You're going to vacuum together. They didn't have vacuums, but you know what I mean? You're going to sweep together. You're going to eat meals together. You're going to get to know each other, but you're not going to touch each other sexually. And you're going to show God, listen, this is so important. You're going to show God that you, can, that you reverence the covenant of marriage so much that you're going to restrain yourself sexually, even though you're legally married. And you're going to prepare your heart, your body, and your mind for that marriage covenant when we actually have the ceremony. And it lasted a whole year. Are you with me? So this was a very special time. Now, during this year, she's moved from Sephoris to Nazareth to live in Joseph's father's house. Jacob was his father's name, Jacob's house. During this year, the angel shows up to her. During this year, the angel says, the power of the highest is going to overshadow thee, and you will be found with child. During this year of sexual purity, she gets pregnant. Do you understand what kind of a gross infraction that would have been seen? And are you going to tell somebody, God got me pregnant? I mean, I'm sorry, but it's not going to fly. I'm sure girls have tried that for years. God got me pregnant. And nobody's ever believed that fib, and nobody ever will believe it, but she's the one person that actually wasn't fibbing. But how are they going to believe her? Yeah. Are you with me? So, we'll, uh, we'll get to, back to that in a second. As you know, Joseph, which we'll talk about in a second, but he decided to be merciful to her. Before he knew this was of God's doing, yeah. it's his job to put her away. But do you know that legally, legally, if a girl got pregnant during the espousal, and the husband wanted to be legalistic. He could demand, it was, he, he had a legal right to demand the Sanhedrin stone her publicly. So Joseph very easily could have, could have killed Mary through the Sanhedrin stoning. Do you understand? And it would have brought great reproach to Joachim because he worked for the Sanhedrin. But, but he didn't do that. He wasn't legalistic. We'll get to that in a second. Now, let's talk just briefly about Joseph. So we talked a little bit about Mary. We talked about some of her qualities. Put the picture, of course, we don't know what Joseph looked like, but that's a nice artist's rendition of Joseph. And uh, Joseph, that's Sephorus in the background there. This is a fascinating study, and I won't be long, but, but you've got to learn some things about this because this really blessed me. Joseph was the man that God chose to be the earthly father of Jesus. You know how important fathers are? Every, every kid needs a mama. But I'm telling you, every kid needs a daddy, especially every boy needs a daddy so that they, they grow up understanding how a man should live. This job, even though he had nothing to do with the pregnancy, is the highest honor any man, human man, has ever had in the history of the world. What kind of a man must he have been for God to select him 
to be the earthly father and trainer of Jesus. He was a special man. He died early. He died before Jesus went into ministry. We don't exactly know when, but he did die early because Jesus took over the family business. But he was a very special man. Now, Matthew 13, 55 and Mark chapter 6, verse 3 says that he was a carpenter. Right? You've all heard that, right? But did you know that this does not primarily mean woodworking carpentry? Because there was no wood, hardly any wood in Israel. Wood was a scarcity. So he was not making dressers. I've seen people for years and movies. You see Joseph making dressers and tables out of wood. That did not happen. That is just a figment. He was not a woodworking carpenter because wood was extremely scarce. And he would not have been able to make a living with wood because it was just not around. And whatever wood was around was so expensive that only the rich could buy it. So really what it was, was he was a tecton. Put that, that, that passage up for me, please. A tecton is a Greek word. This is where we derive the word in English, technology. And it meant the most technologically advanced craftsmen and architecture, arch, uh, artisans. So where it says Joseph was a carpenter, the word in English is carpenter, but the word in Greek is tecton. Okay, and really it should have been translated in 1611 as artisan, not carpenter, because it rarely means carpenter. It means artisan far more often than it means anything else. It's an advanced artisan. It meant uh, that, that uh, he was the most technologically advanced young man of his time. Peter, a shout out to you. <laughs> now listen, tecton comes from the verb meaning to bring forth or to birth. It means somebody that has such expertise that they can envision in their mind something and then create it with their hands into a final product. It's an artist, basically. It, it, it's, it's the word, this word tecton in Greek has strong references to the word creativity. It's the same word used for poets. It's the same word in Greek used for literary giants. It's the same word used for artisans who could manipulate materials in a marvelous way that surpassed ordinary skills. Put the next uh, up there so you can see. Tecton also means, aren't you glad you came to church today? Tecton also means artisans that can create masterful works of art. Shiny and splendid things of extraordinary beauty, making them to appear to come to life. Versatile craftsmen with technical ability to create wonders out of matter in hitherto unseen ways. That's the definition of the Greek word tecton. That means they could make things that nobody had ever seen before. They were artists and creators. That's what Jesus' dad was. He wasn't just making tables and chairs. He was a master artisan. I think that's fascinating. Uh, put this last one up here. Tecton by multiple Greek definitions is highly skilled, versatile, craftsmen, master artisans who possess the technical and creative abilities to make wonders out of matter that previously did not exist. Put the next screen up there. This is what Jesus' dad was. They, this is their, the, the wood carpentry doesn't even make the list, which shows that he wasn't a wood carpenter. This is what tectons would do according to ancient sources architectural design and construction of monumental buildings temples villas and palaces sculptors carvers and stonemasons who would construct buildings and sculptures and statues from stone and marble like leonardo would be called an artisan 
All right, the one that, the, the guy that whoever he is, I can't remember who painted the Sistine Chapel. He's an artisan. That is what Michelangelo, that is what Jesus' dad was. They would, they would specialize in different areas, but the, Tecton includes all these areas. Some would specialize in magnificent mosaics for the floor. Others, elaborate fr- frescoes for the walls. Others would build furniture, but the furniture was, was primarily uh, connected with bronze, silver, gold, and veneered in ivory. That was a lot of the, there was a, rich people wanted ivory and precious stones. And then they would also make jewelry from precious metals and stones. So you can see in uh, this, this guy, Joseph, he was an artisan. And uh, woodworking was there, but it was very rare. In most cases, they did architectural, sculpting, artistry, and furniture, mosaics, frescoes, and jewelry. Okay, now, <clears throat> we know that Antipas has chosen Zephorus to be his capital. According to historical records, Herod Antipas wanted a palace made. He wanted very ornate. He had a lot of money. He wanted everything to be opulent. So you know what he did? He would hire tectons throughout all over Galilee to come and work on his city. Are you listening? Listen, this is very interesting. It took over 30 years to create Sephorus to his standards. He started when Jesus was a baby. So the entire time that Jesus was alive on the earth, Sephorus was being built by Herod Antipas. Are you listening? So this is a, he has seen this over decades. Now listen, listen, this is very interesting. Now he has got workers all over Galilee, artisans coming to work. These are high skilled, high paid people. But not all of them lived in Sephorus because it was such a big workforce. They, they all couldn't live in Sephora. So what did they do? They would go and live within walking or mule distance around Sephora. And Nazareth contained multiple artisans. Nazareth was also the home because he's of David's lineage. So he didn't just pick Nazareth because it was close to Sephora. He picked Nazareth because his family lived in Nazareth because they're of the seed of David and the whole family moved there 100 AD, 100 BC, excuse me. So he had already been living in Nazareth. But now that this building project, now, now Joseph's a young man. He's probably 17, 18 years old. And he, uh, he was older than Mary. And now he is going to Sephorus because he is hired by Herod Antipas. To be, according to his history, he was hired by Herod Antipas as a master artisan to work on his palace and the different other things that he had. And the entire adult working career of Jesus' dad was in Sephora's. He commuted six kilometers every day there and back. And he worked for Herod Antipas as a master artisan, not just making tables and chairs, but making, he could have been a sculptor. He could have been a jewelry maker. He could have been somebody, he, whatever it was, he was a master at it. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Now remember, Jesus had to have some kind of a career because you couldn't become a rabbi legally until you were 30. So he had all his young adulthood that he couldn't just sit around doing nothing. So this is where he was an apprentice. What did Jesus, the Bible called Jesus a carpenter. Jesus was a tecton. Where did he learn his tecton skills from? His papa. Do you realize that at 13 years old at his bar mitzvah when he became a man, because they didn't have education the way we do today, he would have started working in Sephorus, Joseph did, in Sephorus at 13 years old, Jesus, sorry, Jesus, at 13 years old, Joseph would have taken him and said, now you're going to work with me until you're ready for your ministry. Do you realize that for 18 years, Jesus worked 
as a tecton in Sepphoris and his boss was Herod. People don't realize that. Later, he called Herod a fox because he had seen Herod. Jesus probably met Herod. He saw him all the time in Sepphoris. He saw how he treated people. Later, he called him a fox because he was devious. Later, Herod Antipas, remember, beheaded John the Baptist's cousin. So, but Jesus worked for 18 years as a tecton, as a master artisan in Sepphoris with his dad, Joseph, because that was his trade while he was waiting to be of legal age to become a rabbi. So I want you to picture when Jesus was growing up, we, uh, we kind of, I always thought he just like, you know, he sleeps in one room, eats in another, and then he goes to this room and they build a chair or something, and then it's time for lunch, and then they do something else, and then it's time for dinner. No, he would have been up in the morning. He would have been commuting six kilometers every day with his dad. He would have been working under Herod Antipas. He would have been using his skills. Jesus was a master artisan. Jesus could have been a sculptor. He could have been a jewelry maker. He could have been one that was a stone carver. Who knows what he was, but he was, whatever he was, he was the best. Now, the Bible actually says it because when it says in, in Matthew and when it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it calls him not a carpenter. It calls him the carpenter. And if you study that in the Greek, it means he was above all the other carpenters. What is carpenter? It's a tecton. So that means out of all the different artisans that lived in Nazareth, because many would have lived there to, to, to commute, that the Bible calls him the tecton in Nazareth. That means, I want you to picture this. Jesus was the most skilled artisan in the entire town of Nazareth. He had a reputation. This proves historically that they were not poor. They were a wealthy family. He would have been very well paid for his work by Herod Antipas as his dad was. So all these people that oh, I was a poor little carpenter, that is complete bunk. They were, a, they were a well-off family. His grandparents on his mother's side were a well-off rich family. Jesus grew up not scrounging the bottom of the barrel. He grew up with a good work ethic. He grew up not being lazy. He was a master artisan. He wasn't just a wooden carpenter. They probably, they'd probably never even used wood at, the, at those times, but he did a lot of other wonderful things. My God. Mm-mm-mm. Woo. So, he would have obviously been going to Sephora's, going to synagogue in Sephora's, met Mary there, would have known her father because he worked in the synagogue, and Joseph was a very pious, righteous man. You know, his dad was a pious, righteous man. And so, it's amazing to think. Now, I just want to read you just a couple scriptures here before we close. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, we are his workmanship, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, born anew. Isn't it amazing that workmanship in the Greek is the word for poet? We are God's poetry. In other words, God used that word workmanship because what he's saying is he expresses full creativity when he wrote your life. Jesus, Jesus was uh, an artisan. Remember, that word tecton was also used for poets. So Jesus, the great artisan, used the full extent of his creative powers, not just when he did his job 2,000 years ago, but when he formed me, when he formed my future. You know, he's still a great artisan today. 
He did that in the physical realm, but he also does that in the spiritual realm. Jesus is the great, where the workmanship or the handiwork of his hands. Jesus, the great poet, has taken me into his hand and released all his creative forces to make me the workmanship worthy to bear his name. I think that's a beautiful, whenever you think of that verse, remember, he's, he's this, he, he works on us. He is making us something beautiful like he's making a piece of art. But remember, that, that's a wonderful thought, but Jesus actually did that physically as well as he does it spiritually. Can I read you that scripture, please, from the, new, from the Passion Translation? Because it's got a, a real beautiful, uh, a, what, what, what scripture was that again? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I want to just read that from the Passion Translation because it just says it so beautifully. In, 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 in the Passion, it says, We have become his poetry, recreated people that will fulfill the destiny that he has given each of us, and for we are joined to Jesus, the anointed one. We are God's poetry. We are God's special work that he formed with his hands. I think it's amazing that in the natural, he was a master creator, an artisan, a sculptor. And in the spiritual, he sculpts our lives. I think that's so beautiful. It encouraged me when I read that. You know, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, which I preached recently, it says that God is making the living stones, making a spiritual house of living stones so that we can house his glory, right? Is that right? That word, that verse in the Greek, if you study it, making living stones a spiritual house, there's a stonemason quality to that. It really means in the Greek, God is carving. He is carving you as a living stone to make you fit for his plan. And I think it's amazing. I didn't realize that all of these things are actually connected to Jesus' physical life. Because Jesus was a master artisan. And then Ephesians 2.10 talks about artisanry. And then Jesus, remember, those tectons were also stone workers. And here Jesus being the master stonemason. And here it says that he carves me into a living stone. I, I just think that's amazing. Also, the word tecton means or implies an overseer, a chief overseer, or a building supervisor. You know what Matthew 18, 19 says? He says, I will build my church. Yes that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But really what he's saying is, I will oversee my church. If you study that in the Greek, when he says he builds his church, it's a construction term. And really, if somebody is overseeing a construction project, they're called an overseer. What Jesus is saying here is, I am the great overseer. I'm the great, I'm the one that is building this thing called the church and the gates of hell. But tectons were overseers. In the natural, he would have been that, but in the spiritual, he's also that. And then finally, in in, uh, 1 Peter 2.25, it says, coming unto Jesus, who is the bishop and the overseer of our souls. He oversees our development. He organizes our life. You know that Jesus is a tecton. Tecton meant, it meant building supervisor. I will build my church. And it meant great overseer. It meant an overseer. Jesus is the great overseer of our souls. All these terms that I had no idea were connected to his earthly life. I know Jesus is a great master builder, but I didn't know that he actually did that in real life. I know he, he, he carves me. I didn't know he did that in real life. I know he sculpts me, Ephesians 2.10. I didn't know he did that in real life. I know he's the overseer, 1 Peter 2.25, of my soul, but I didn't know the tectons were overseers. 
It's amazing that what he does in our life today mirrored what he did as a job. I just think that's astonishing. To me, that's amazing. Now, lastly, before we close, I want to talk about Joseph's qualities. Joseph's qualities are longer than Mary's, but it's, Joseph had a very important job. Remember, in, 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 in the, especially in that society, but the, the man is the head of the house, but especially in that society, men took the lead. Men were the ones that were responsible for the protection and the guidance of the family. We have more revelation today about women equal and remember Ephesians and Paul and he taught us that we're heirs together in the grace of life. But back then, Paul hadn't written any of that. So it was more of a male-dominated society. And if you're going to raise Jesus right, it's not just Mary that's going to be able to impart to him. The papa, that father figure holds an incredibly valuable role, especially in that culture of how Jesus was raised. So there's some qualities that we need to see here. Joseph had been proven faithful with money, which meant he obviously had to have money. Remember I told you that he was very well paid for his work? In order to be found faithful in how he handled it, you know, he had to pass the money test for God to, for God to give him above all other men the true riches of raising Jesus. Luke 16, 11, if you're not faithful, an unrighteous mammon, that's money, who will entrust to your care the true riches, which means spiritual assignments. It means the anointing. It means assignments to preach. It means assignments in prayer. It means anything that is a spiritual assignment. That's Luke 16, 11. Now listen, are you listening to with me? Just give me a few more minutes and then we're close. Your turkey will be fine. It's dead anyway. Just relax. Listen, this is very important. If God says... I want to give you spiritual assignments. Every person is like this. But in order to qualify for the spiritual assignment, you have to be faithful with natural money. Some of you wonder why God doesn't use you. It's because he can't trust you to tithe. He can't trust you to give offerings when he tells you to. He can't trust you to pay your bills on time. He can't trust you to have a good report with the other people in the world. The Bible says we're to have a good reputation in the world when it comes to our finances. In fact, one of the qualifications to be a pastor is that you have to have a good reputation financially in the world system. You can't be seen as somebody that's always moving and chucking and jiving and stealing and and, and you're always in debt, you're always having problems and you're always trying to do some get-rich-quick scheme. You have to have a salt. That's one of the qualifications of being a pastor. So listen, God says, I want to give spiritual assignments, but you have to be faithful with money because money reflects the heart. If Jesus, if God was giving Joseph the most important true riches that any human being has ever had, the spiritual responsibility of raising Jesus the Christ. Do you realize how important that was? Obviously, he had to have been faithful in natural money or he couldn't have had those, the true riches of that spiritual assignment. So we know that Joseph passed the money test. He had money, he wasn't broke, but he treated money right and he did right things with it. He was a tither, he was a giver, he was responsible, he paid his bills. And according to 2 Corinthians 9, 8, we're told to do good works and give to charitable donations. That was written after the fact, but Joseph would have been a generous man. He would have been an honorable man, and he would have done good. Remember, remember Mary's father was rich, but historical records tell us he gave a lot of his money to the church, to the synagogue. Joseph would have been the same way. He had to pass the money test for God to use him. Praise God. It's so important for us. I hope you're listening to me. Every one of you, you want God to use you. You've got to get the money thing down pat. 
You've got to get it in its right place. God don't mind you having it, but he doesn't want it having you. Hallelujah. Number two, he had a good work ethic and he had a job (laughs) and he was responsible. Are you listening to me? And he taught Jesus how to be responsible and how not to be lazy. That was important to God because Jesus had 18 years to do something before he had to preach. He wanted him productive and not lazy. He had to qualify for the ministry. So Joseph had to have that good work ethic. Number three, he was sexually pure. You want God to use you? Keep the sex category right. Both inside the marriage covenant and outside the marriage covenant. Because people can be married but be sexually impure because they're lusting and they're trying things that are outside the boundaries. Or you can be not married and be sexually impure. But this is very important to God that people were sexually pure and obviously Joseph was. Number four, Joseph was merciful. Because when he discovered Mary was a child, before he realized it was God's doing, he decided to secretly put her away, okay, and not have her shamed or even executed. In other words, this could have hurt his own reputation, but people found out. Nobody's going to believe that God got her pregnant. So to protect his own reputation, he could have been, I'm going to make sure everybody knows that I'm innocent here. And that I wasn't me that got her pregnant and I'm going to make it public. You see, he listened to me. He cared. God looked at his heart. He cared more about his wife's, his future wife's reputation than he did his own. Because if he cared about what everybody thought of him, he might have made it public. So that everybody knew that he was innocent. And listen, he loved the word. Joseph loved the word. He loved the synagogue. But have you ever met religious people that are just mean? Religiosity legalism makes people mean. Mm, Remember, we're going to stone her. Jesus said, the one that doesn't ever sin, you you, you be the first one. Jesus loved the word. He was the word, but he was never legalistic and he was never mean. And he showed mercy over justice whenever he could. Joseph, we know this by what he did with Mary. He was not legalistic. If he was legalistic, he would have shamed her. He chose mercy over justice. I'm going to, this is before even you, God had done it. He thought that she'd been sleeping around and he still said, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be merciful to you. He wasn't the legalistic mean guy. God did not want some man raising his son who was legalistic and mean spirited. Are you listening to me, husbands and fathers? God expects you to love the word and to, yes, hold to truth, but he does not want you to be legalistic and mean-spirited with your children. And God looked and made sure that the one that he was going to assign as the natural father was kind and merciful, was pure, was was not lazy, and knew how to handle money right. These are very important things, and they're good for all of us to learn. Number five, we're almost done. He was spiritually attuned and obedient. Matthew 1, the angel tells him, take Mary. She's your wife. Did he argue? He believed and he immediately and quickly obeyed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He, he would, listen, God says, I don't, I don't need somebody who can't hear me. Yeah. Yeah. Daddies, are you listening to me? God don't need people that, that are hard to dull of hearing spiritually. Now, when he had the dream, the angel didn't appear to him like he did Mary. The angel came in a dream. But when he had the dream and the angel said in the dream, take Mary, she's your wife. What has been done is of the Holy Ghost. Did he argue? Immediately he said yes. He was spiritually attuned and he quickly obeyed. 
What about when the angel came the second time in the dream and said, get up and flee quickly to Egypt for Herod seeks the child's life and stay until I give thee word that Herod is dead. The next day he woke up, they packed the donkey and they left. He was spiritually attuned. Remember, he's the leader of the family. God needed a man who could hear spiritually and quickly obey without argument. These are very important qualities as to why God picked him. Praise God. And lastly, Joseph was consistent and faithful in spiritual things. Notice in Luke chapter 2, it says every year he took Jesus and Mary up to the feast in Jerusalem. Remember, that's when he got lost and he said, I'm about my father's business. But every, it says very clearly every year, which means he was obviously faithful to regular synagogue. And when there were special events, listen to me, everybody. A lot of people can be faithful to regular church, but when there's special events like a guest minister, they don't show up. I wonder why things don't work within my life the way I want them to work. I wonder why God doesn't trust me more. In not just regular spiritual activities called weekly services, but on special feasts, which was only one time a year, he always was there. Joseph made sure his family, that was at least six of them plus Jesus, that seven kids, minimum, maybe more if they were more daughters. Seven kids and two adults, that's nine people, all having to be dressed right, all having to have snacks, <laughs> all having to have wet wipes. I'm just, just think about it. It is a whole troop to get on those donkeys and go to Jerusalem. And every year he was faithful with spiritual things, not just regular church, but special meetings. Man, when I saw that, Jenny, I thought, my God, I got to preach that because so many people in our church are faithful to regular church, but they're not faithful to special meetings. Joseph was, God wanted somebody raising his boy that was going to train him. It's not just important to come every week. It's important to go to the special things. Mm -mm -mm. Praise God. Almost done. Oh, we're almost there. Put, the, put this up very quickly. Mary's training was more about carrying Jesus. It wasn't about working a job or handling finances. Do you understand? Her assignment was different. God ensured that Mary was trained in the word and to say yes and to agree with the plan because that was her assignment. And culturally, she had to know, I didn't say today, but I'm saying back then, she had to know how to run a house and be faithful to the spiritual things. So God made sure she was trained in what she was going to be used in. Notice there wasn't a job, there wasn't money, that wasn't her assignment. Now look at Joseph. Joseph's training, he needed to be tested with money and responsibility and as an honest provider. He was going to be somebody to give Jesus a skill for 18 years before he preached. He had to have integrity and loyalty and be a spiritual man. As I gave you those six qualifications, one of them was he had to be spiritual. He had to be faithful to church and he had to listen and obey quickly. There are different assignments that these individual people had, but isn't it amazing that God caused both of them from the seed of David for their parents to see them? Obviously, Jacob's dad, uh, J Joseph's dad, Jacob would have seen Mary and said, look at that chaste girl. Look how much she loves God. Look at what her parents do. They love God. She's of the line of David. She'd be a good match for our son, yeah. Joseph. And, and, and Mary's parents, Joachim would have said, look at that young man. He's not a lazy bum. He can provide for my daughter. He's got a good job. He's got an advancing career. He loves God. Look how spiritual he is. Look how kind he is. And he's from the seed of David. That's a, God supernaturally influenced them. That's a good match. And then they get espoused, which means legally married without sex. And that same year, the angel comes and says, this is it, Mary. All your life, you've been raised knowing you're a miracle and that you've got a special plan. Now just say yes.
because her mama Anna taught her when, the, when God shows it, just say yes. No matter how impossible it was. And she had the one assignment that no woman could truly really believe was possible. But she had been raised all her life to say yes. We need to say yes to God. Brother, even Australia, we need to just say yes to God. No matter how impossible it seems, you just say yes. And God will do the rest. Praise God. Do I have one more? Last screen. Jesus would have learned a natural skill from his father Joseph, as well as obviously many other things. Jesus would have learned to say yes to the plan of God from his mother, as well as many other things. And he would have learned a deep love for the word by being around his grandfather Joachim because he was always around the scrolls reading the word. Think about Jesus as his mom would have nailed, you're special, you're a miracle, like I was a miracle. God's got a plan for you, say yes. I'm serious, that, that, I think that was good groundwork for Jesus as a child. His mama had a part, his daddy had a part, let's be faithful, let's be spiritual, let's be kind, let's treat God right, let's treat each other right, let's treat money right, let's treat our job right. Because he's going to work for 18 years before he preaches. He learned different things from his parents that held him. Plus his grandpa, every time he's around grandpa, it's let's talk about the word. Let's read the word. Amen. Grandpas need to invest in their grandchildren spiritual things. Praise God. Hallelujah. You're a, you're a granny now. <laughs> and you're a grandpa. See, the things change, don't they, Lorraine? You don't feel like a grandmother, do you? And you don't look like one. But things change. It's time to be Joachim. We'll call you from now on. Joachim and Anna. I just thought it was fascinating. What I, what I loved the most is that Jesus was a master artisan. He was a highly paid expert at his job. He wasn't a loser. He wasn't making a chair that creaked and then it was unbalanced. He was the best of the best. And he took that and then he applied it all spiritually to how he, he's, he makes our life an artistry. He carves us. He oversees us. He builds us. He did that in Sephora's. Some little details that a lot of people don't know about Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Praise God. I hope you learned a little few things today. I know some of you are going, I already knew all of that. <laughs> like, what, what a waste of time. I already knew all of that. Well, if you did, then, then, then God bless you because you're a genius. Because I didn't know virtually any of that until I studied it. And it was a great blessing to me. Now, don't forget, Wednesday... We're going to teach you some stuff about the shepherds you didn't know. And it's precious. About the wise men and their gifts and what they were, who they were, how many they were. All that stuff. It's very fascinating. And also about the angels. What happened when the angels actually showed up? What does that mean? It's very precious. You're going to enjoy Wednesday night. I hope you enjoy today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the joy of Christmas. I know, Lord, today was more of a, uh, it was more of a history lesson than really a teaching or a preaching. I tried to weave in some spiritual truths with it as well. But, Father, it was more just to, just to learn. And every now and then, it's so rare that we do it this way. But every now and then, it's so precious just to learn just to learn things that maybe we didn't know so that the Bible become alive to us and become more real to us. That when we picture this now, we actually picture it correctly instead of the way that the cards and history and the, and the pictures what we've seen has taught us. Usually those things aren't right in, in most cases, Lord. We have to study really to know what really happened. So we give you praise and we give you glory and we give you honor in Jesus' name.